Welcome to Lamestream here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. My name is Steve Cavendish. You can follow me at Scavendish on Twitter. And what should people do who they, like the show? They should rate. They should review. They should subscribe. And if inclined, they should smash the subscribe button. Also, follow all of the 440 Sports socials as well. At 440 Sports on Facebook and Twitter. At 440 Media on Instagram. There you go. All of them. Yep. There you go. All right, big show today, of course, at the end here, Steve. As usual, we'll have ratings and recs for everybody with some recommendations uh, and, uh, of course, television ratings for the five most-watched sports shows in Nashville. And Tony Husband is going to be our guest on the program today, play-by-play commentator, as they would say in England, for Nashville SC. And he has had not only a fascinating first season in MLS, but... Just a, a fascinating transition in life to come from one country to another in the middle of a pandemic while launching an expansion franchise. We're going to learn a lot about how you prepare and how you broadcast and how you call a game uh, and, and all the things that go into that. But also, you know, talk a little soccer with a guy who's been through a very fascinating and interesting experience in the last 12 months. Tony's a fascinating guy. He, he grew up in the south, uh, south part of England, caught on with the BBC when he was 21, uh, has done a lot of work in football, football soccer, however you want to say it, uh, and a lot of other sports uh, helped do, of course, the BBC's Olympic coverage in, in 2012, but has done everything from darts to, you know, cricket to whatever else. I, I think it's interesting, you know, I, as a, as a longtime fan of English soccer, uh, and I've got a 25-year kind of fandom with Newcastle that is, at this point, you know, feels like more of a disease, <laughs> but I always wonder, I, I always wonder, you know, if I grew up over there or if I lived over there, kind of like how my fandom would be, how and, and how I would view, you know, just being English and being in that environment. It's sort of the reverse for Tony. I mean, he was a huge NFL fan. He's been a fan of American sports. And so for him, he got this he got this really interesting opportunity to become the the voice of an MLS side you know, that was brand new. And, and he'll talk about sort of the attraction to that. But also you know, he got to come to, he got to live out this sort of American dream, really weird circumstances, you know, wave your arms wildly in describing 2020 here. Right. But so he ends up here in the middle of a pandemic for, uh, for a Nashville SC side that has gone on kind of a wild ride. Yeah. And, and listen, we'll, we'll talk a little soccer with him as well. He's, he's got some really interesting thoughts on comparing MLS to the EPL. I thought he had a really good answer on that. So he'll he'll explain that far better than I ever will as far as the differences between the standard of play. A lot of thoughts on what he's seen around the MLS players and teams that he enjoys watching. But really really what I wanted to dive in with him, Steve, was to sort of take fans through the process of a play-by-play week and, and sort of what that's like to be in the booth, uh, to plan for a big call the way Nashville SC finished the regular season against Orlando City. If you do not know, they scored two goals in the final, I think, six minutes to steal three points from a team that had not lost at home. You know, great drama at the end. And and sort of how do you prepare for that as a broadcaster? Now you spent the last couple of years actually doing this with the USL side. What what was what was the hardest part of that for you? <laughs> uh, all of it. <laughs> uh, as, so I've never actually called any games as a play-by-play guy ever. Um, I did some color on both radio and a few television games with John Freeman and Wes Bowling, who are now the radio broadcast team for Nashville SC over each of the last two years. And there's a lot of 
interesting things that take place. Number one, I think the learning the cadence of soccer and the language of soccer, I think is a really interesting thing from a broadcast standpoint. Most of us in this country, we know the, the verbiage around football and around basketball and around baseball. I think there is sort of an artistry to talking about soccer that is very different than talking about dingers, <laughs> right. you know, in the major, major league baseball. Well, and, and for Tony coming over here, there's a cultural conversion too, because you know, if you and I have the, were to have a, you know, a deep football conversation, somebody coming over here from England who may have seen like an NFL game, you know, one or two a year would, would listen to the conversation we're having and be like, what the hell is that? For someone who grows up immersed in that to come to a market where they are just now planting the flag right. of a, of a top flight professional franchise, I think is is fascinating. And I'm not talking about like using the word pitch or nil instead of field or zero. I'm talking about like genuine artistry of the of the English language as it pertains to describing things on the field, both in radio and in television. And I think there is just an eloquence. You may call it highbrow to some degree, but there's to me there's an art form, an artistry, and an eloquence to the way a play-by-play -play person talks about soccer. And and I think John does this on the radio side, and I think Tony does an excellent job, of course, on the television side. Where there's just I don't know, it's 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 a different type of vernacular, and and I appreciate it, and I think it's a, a welcome change from all the other broadcasts when I hear Joe Buck just use pretty basic language to describe football <laughs> games. And, I, and he's a great broadcaster. It's not a knock on him, but like consider your audience, right? Right. <laughs> so right. so um, the other thing is, you know, learning when to let silence and let the ambient noise. I think I learned that doing those games where in soccer you want to shut up. <laughs> and after, especially after a big goal, you make the call. And, you know, in my experience with the USL team, my play-by-play -play guy would reach over, John Freeman would reach over and like put his hand on me. And be like, don't talk. <laughs> that was like his nonverbal way of telling me, shut up. Let let the uh, put the hand over and shut up. Let the crowd, let the supporters, let the well. There has let to that do the work. You have to. The best broadcasters embrace a moment, and, and and you see this. You see this in the best baseball. You see this in the best football uh, announcers, where they can step away from it for a second and just sort of let, particularly when there's a crowd involved. And that's, that's been one of the harder things this year is, is kind of the absence of that, but being able to let the drama of the thing that you're watching be, as opposed to yeah. talking all over it. And it, it, it's a hard thing to do. I, I think, I do think that the, the best soccer announcers do that better than the best football announcers or the best baseball or basketball announcers in part just because of how the flows of the game are but Tony uh, Tony I've been pleasantly surprised you know I, I wasn't familiar with his work uh, coming in he's been he's been a real joy to listen to on Nashville SC broadcast this year and, and and I think he does a good job of when there is a moment calling that moment but also not stepping all over it yep and he's going to talk about sort of how do you especially if you're calling it off a, a, a television set on a road match for yeah. example with Orlando City where you have to sort of allow whoever's doing the broadcast visually dictate how the story is told and that then affects what you talk about right if and he'll talk about he'll, he'll explain it a little better than, than I'm doing right now I will say that the cadence learning as a guy who talks on podcasts and radio shows for extended periods of time using lots of words to fill a lot of space it is there is a cadence to a play-by-play -play or color role that's very different and for me it was learning to get in 
mention what I think was important to try to tell the story of what I saw and then get out real quickly and, and let the play-by-play guy go back. And soccer and hockey in particular, the play-by-play guy has to do almost all of the work. I, I think you're absolutely right. The other thing, too, is um, – uh, not to not to pimp our own show, but go back and listen to Gorman last week. I, I think Gorman has has one of the more unique cadences of, of somebody who's doing stuff on radio right now, and that kind of came through in in our interview. It's not it's not your typical fill every second kind of cadence. Yep, I, I totally agree. And the last thing I'd like to mention here, and we we asked Tony about this, and and this is. You know, every coach in every sport, way more so in the NFL with Mike Vrabel, college football with Jeremy Pruitt or Nick Saban, we, we know that coaches have different personalities sort of outward facing to the media, to the cameras, during press conferences, um, during radio interviews, and, and sort of when they're just being themselves, talking ball, right? Topic, talking shop. And one of the things that you get to do as a broadcaster calling a game in any sport, NFL or anything, you have a meeting with the coaching staff, generally of if you're doing high-level network football, for example, you're going to talk to both coaching staffs. You know, Gary Danielson and, and, and Brad Nessler are meeting with both, you know, Georgia's coaching staff and Florida's coaching staff at some point during the week to discuss things, right? Right. Um, strategies, tactics, injuries, all this other stuff. And that is that was by far my favorite part of calling, getting to call some of those USL games was to, to sort of get the uncensored, unfiltered view of everything in a way, and again, I wasn't. You're not allowed to talk about that stuff, but it does give you insight into how you tell the story to the audience as to what you're seeing unfold in the game. And that was by far my favorite part: is listening to Coach Smith being able to, you know, just just riffing about soccer. And that that was my favorite part of of getting to call those games. Well, hope you enjoyed the uh, hope you enjoyed the interview with Tony. I, I think he's I think he's one of the best additions to Nashville and, and kind of the media scene here this past year. We've got ratings and recs coming up afterward. We'll talk a little soccer as well, but without further ado, Nashville SC play by play man Tony Husband. First of all, Tony, thanks for giving us a few minutes of your time. And last weekend. The first MLS regular season in Nashville finishes up with quite a bang. Uh, we still have the playoffs still to come. But before we get into how you prep for a game and all these processes that you go through as a broadcaster, uh, let's just take everybody through the emotion of the final few moments of, of how that's the regular season ended. Just kind of take people through what you're feeling as Nashville scores twice in the final few minutes to come from behind and, and get a huge three points. Sort of explain to people what's going through your head in the broadcast booth as you're seeing that unfold. Well, first of all, guys, it's so, so good to spend some time talking to you. And, you know, we, we have had an incredible year here. We have had an incredible MLS season. This inaugural year has certainly not looked like what everyone would have, would have thought when we go back to February. But as you wind down that clock at Exploria Stadium last Sunday afternoon, and it's 2-1, Nashville have put up a, a you know, a, a, to that point, very creditable display, but they're up against a side who's not lost at home all season, who's going to finish high up in the standings, who's, you know, been one of the kind of storylines of MLS in 2020. Um, you're kind of selling, you're, you're hoping in your mind and selling to the audience, you know what, we could still have some drama. It's been such a year. Could we have a crazy finish? Could we just have some more uh, storytelling to bring you in these next few minutes of action? And it, it all kind of hinged for me on Annie Mukhtar coming onto the field, uh, returning from injury, and you know setting up this kind of fairy tale finish. And you know one of the great things about sport is we can't write scripts for it, can we? It, it's it's pure real drama. 
And that finish just encapsulated for me the, the highs that we've still been able to joy, enjoy in what's been a, you know, a very difficult and challenging year at times for everyone, but also a year that's just been so fruitful and you know, just brings a smile to your face. I mean, I think that no one would begrudge Nashville um, getting that 3-2 win and you know, finishing the season in such a way because I think it encapsulates everything we've learned about this roster, about the organisation, about the digging deep, about the effort of Gary Smith and his coaching staff and those players. One of the, I think one of the most united locker rooms you probably will see anywhere in a, in a soccer league at the moment. So it was just a fabulous finish. And um, as somebody calling it, uh, you know, um, for these games, you're doing them off tube, as we say in the industry, you know, off, off television screens. So you're not in the stadium for the away games. So most of the time I, I sit down for those. Um, um, but when John Cadiz heads that ball in at the end there, I'm telling you guys, uh, I, I'm straight up on my feet, you know, and, and you know, you're just uh, pounding the words out and hopefully making some sense in the process. So, so talk a little bit about that because, I mean, this season's been weird for a lot of different reasons, but, but you're not at the game. How hard is that? And is it, is it hard to sense the flow of the game uh, from that? I think it's very different. The, you know, it's not an uncommon thing to do in broadcasting, though, and I think that's why I, I would say that the sports industry has, you know, has excelled during this very challenging few months that we have had. Uh, we do a lot of remote broadcasting around the world now in whatever sport it is. And so it's not an unusual thing to be asked to call a game off monitors. Um, I think any play-by-play caller in pretty much any sport would tell you that the ideal is always to be in the stadium. That's where you feel the atmosphere and the vibe, um, even in an empty stadium, I would add. Uh, but, you know, we get a lot of experience of doing it off monitors. The challenges that that gives you, of course, is that you can only see what the feed is offering you. You see no more than what the television viewer at home is is seeing. So the picture of the game that you are trying to paint for the audience uh, is the one provided by the, you know, the the fine camera work uh, and directing of the outside broadcasts who are on site and providing those pitches back. It means though, you know, it's challenging for myself and and for Jamie and for, for Laurie because they can't see anything else uh, outside of the television pitches. You know, they can only draw their conclusions on what they're seeing from the pitches that are being offered. Now, essentially, yeah, getting from A to B across the field, you know, that, that'll tell you what's happening in the game. But I think, you know, for analysts like Jamie, who are always looking around the field and looking for things off the ball, it makes it harder because you haven't got the bigger picture. Well, that was um, going to be my question was for – if you're in stadium, you can see, for instance, adjustments that Gary might be making in the team. And those have been a lot over the last few games. He's, he's switched, he switched to three at the back at the time, at times he's, he's really kind of moved people around trying to get some scoring punch. That's not visible very much on the, on the feed. How do you, how do you kind of compensate for, for, for not being able to see that? Yeah, it's a good question. And I mean, as I said, you, you are in the hands of the pitches you've got. Um, what you have to try and do is draw on your experience of the game. And, and even if you maybe look, you want to focus on the fact that it's a back three and it's wing backs pushing forward. But if the camera is down the other end of the, of the field and it's focusing on the final third, um, 
you know, where are those wing backs maybe at any one time? Have they pushed up as much? Um, sometimes you have to go off the positioning of the other players. So have the midfield, the central midfielders, how high up the field are they? Can that give you an insight into maybe what's going on just out of shot and out behind them? Um, but it is difficult. Uh, and that's in many ways why I tip my hat to the likes of Laurie and Jamie, who are breaking down the analysis of the tactics of the game, uh, leaving me to kind of describe what's happening and provide the commentary on what we're seeing. Um, but to actually be able to hone in on those moments, like, you know, well, how, how is that back three working? You know, are they stepping up like they were as a flat back four? Uh, all things that in this remote world are a little bit more challenging to do for sure. Um, and, and no easy answer other than I think, you know, you, you fall back on the experience and the talent of the people you've got at your disposal. And, you know, uh, and in Jamie and Laurie, you know, they provide a great comfort blanket for me in, in, in seeing things that, you know, those who haven't played the game at the highest level will not always see. What's interesting, I don't think I've ever met or spoken with a man or a woman who calls games professionally that hasn't practiced, right? That, that's running through reps. And sometimes you write down stuff you know you want to say about a particular player in a big moment. Sometimes it's half emotion, half script. Sort of what, what is your process for knowing? And, and obviously the, the last game of the regular season provided you with with two opportunities to sort of deliver those really big emotional swells of, of commentary. Do you, do you write some of that stuff? Do you, do you write half of it? Do you let the emotion dictate where you go with that? Take the fans through that process of actually the words themselves you're going to use, because in soccer, it's such a big moment when, you know, when somebody connects, it, you, you got to be prepared for that moment. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the challenge always is, uh, I think sport for me is spontaneous it is it is something being being drawn out in front of your eyes um, that very often in, in its best moments you didn't expect or uh, and you're seeing it for the first time. My take as a as a play by play guy, whether it be right back when I was 21 years of age at the BBC and, and doing radio broadcasts, uh, has always been um, to go with what you see in the moment, go with the emotion of the moment. Don't have a script because if you've got a script and you then look down at your piece of paper and even if even if the unexpected fits what you've got written down you will not deliver it the same way now that's my my opinion that's not to say that there aren't people who write little things down because I, I suppose in many ways you know my wife would probably say to you that I'm away in a world of commentary kind of all the you know whether we're pushing a trolley around a supermarket grocery store you know thinking about a game this coming weekend and a scenario and things like that, you know, and having to concentrate and say, no, look, come on, you know, you've got to concentrate. What do you want for dinner tonight? What are we going to have? What are we doing? What are our plans here? You know, because you get, you get lost in it because you're living it. And I suppose that's where maybe some of the, the things that come into your mind, um, you're, you're thinking about, you know, well, what if, what if that happens? What if they came back to do this? Um, you know, one thing I've had in my mind, much of this season is, you know, I'm a great student of, of American sport, particularly the NFL. And, you know, and so I, it's always been in the back of my mind, you know, wow, what happens if, uh, if Nashville SC come from three nil down to win a game four, three in Nissan stadium. And, you know, that's a music city miracle, isn't it? Um, and, it <laughs> and it's things like that, you know, so I have that kind of thing in my mind, but uh, going back to, you know, Orlando last weekend, and, you know, I'll listen back and I, I think you're your own worst critic of your commentary. What are the things you could have said? Where, where are the moments where maybe you should have just given it a breath? And I'll come on to that in a second as well, because how COVID has affected 
kind of the whole art of goal pooling, uh, I think is an interesting one. Um, but I like to just be, to go with the emotions. Now, if that means sometimes maybe, maybe you don't choose the, the absolutely perfect words and maybe the words don't flow in exactly the order that they would if you sat down and wrote them down, then I'm good with that because I think it just shows you're excited. Um, you know, uh, somebody who uh, I trust deeply in, in British television sport, you know, once said to me, a uh, big piece of advice, he said, look, you sound like you're enjoying it and you sound, and, and you, you get excited. And, and he said for him, that works. You know, we want you to be excited and enjoying it and doing it with a smile on your face. And so when Donda Cadiz heads in, I'm excited, you know, I'm smiling. Um, I'm reacting a little bit. I'm going with the pitches as well. So, you know, I bring out Oscar Perea and Orlando into the equation in that goal call because our camera feed gives us Oscar Perea looking you know, pretty glum. If they'd given me the drummers behind the goal, you, you're silencing them. Um, if you'd given me Gary Smith and the, the Nashville bench celebrating, we're going to go with Gary, you know, a bit more on Gary Smith. So, you know, reactive to pitches as well, always. So let's walk back here just a little bit. You mentioned you joined the BBC. I believe you joined like the, the South. You joined BBC South. Uh, That's right. Uh, as, a, as a youngster. What, uh, what kinds of games were you calling initially? I know you've done a little bit of everything. I think you even did some Olympic coverage back around the, the, the British games in 2012. When did you kind of zero in on, on football slash soccer as, as something that you really wanted to do? Well, I think in England, you grow up with soccer as your default. It's the default sport anyway for anyone who wants to be a sports broadcaster because it's just the biggest. It's our national game. It's what everybody is, you know, you grow up with. Um, and then outside of that, there are sports like cricket, rugby, track and field, um, you know, which, which occupy a lot of the other time. Um, so I was very fortunate. Uh, I got into the BBC as a 21-year-old. Um, an opportunity arose, a gap was created, and I, I, was, I still remember this day, I was kind of pulled into an office, and I was sat down with uh, a kind of senior guy, and they said straight away, you know, can you commentate? Um, and now I'd been commentating since I was a five-year-old kid running around my parents' gardens watching the 1982 World Cup when Paolo Rossi was scoring goals for Italy. And the English caller, John Motson, the legendary BBC broadcaster, um, had this habit of kind of going, Paolo Rossi! You know, and I was screaming this around my garden, kicking the ball around. Uh, so I, if I'd never wanted to be, you know, you want to be that footballer. You want to be the you want to be that that star, whether it, or, or in, indeed in my case, cricket, because cricket's a big passion. Um, but um, but if you're not going to be good enough to make it to that level, then the next best thing is well, you know, you could broadcast it, you could help tell the story of it. And coming from a journalistic background as well, uh, I, my my parents are journalists. My grandfather was a sports journalist who did um, multiple Olympics, World Cups, um, did the whole. Muhammad Ali era in boxing was a frequent traveler, which I think was part of the kind of thing that I enjoyed traveling for the job. Um, so, you know, I had a kind of hero, an instant hero within my family that I, I wanted to try and emulate in, in getting into the, you know, the sports world. So very easy path. And yeah, very fortunate again to the BBC at, at 21 and, and actually get going quite quickly with it. it. Sort of take people through when you transition to the United States and you come here to the MLS, how did you view your role and sort of meshing your history, your past, your experiences 
with sort of this whole new thing that, that's going to be here in Nashville for the first time ever. How did you view that role as, as sort of the, the voice of the team? And were there any things that you needed to do differently that you felt like strategically, maybe you needed to tweak this or tweak that to as far as having a different audience? Well, first of all, I, you know, I love, I love being part of something that's, you know, a bit of history. I love the fact that here we are in year one of Nashville SC and, you know, one day people will look back on, on you know, hopefully the, the big moments, the first win, um, securing the playoffs, winning games in the playoffs, we hope, you know, um, charting the early history of this soccer club. To me, I love the fact we're part of that and we're telling a story. Um, the, the kind of the historian in me, the journalist in me, the sports fan in me um, is kind of privileged to be, to be part of that in year one and to be part of something that, that is totally new. You know, I come from a sports culture where all the teams, you, you know, you, you go and call a game, uh, you know, some of the teams have been there 125 years. Um, you're not really a part of that club's history that you call a few games here and there, you know, unless you happen to be fortunate and maybe do a really big game. So Southampton, I, I did the 2003 FA Cup final. So I always like to think I've got a little spot in Southampton broadcasting history that I called a cup final when they were in it. Um, but, you know, here was a chance to kind of bring a new audience in, you know, try and spread the word of soccer into, you know, a, a new state to complete an ambition for me of working abroad and in the United States in this league, which I've followed for many years. Um, uh, and just to, you know, to, to just tell a story. And in terms of my kind of style, I spoke to quite a few people before coming over. I had conversations with the likes of John Champion and Ian Dark um, and, uh, you know, and lots of other people in the industry and people you know, on both sides of the pond, as it were. Um, I haven't really, I don't think it really changed too much. Um, I've tried to, you know, to encapsulate some, some of the language that, that soccer fans over here are a bit more used to. Uh, I don't think that's been a massive transition for me because my love of watching the NFL and watching how sports are presented over here um, has meant that using some of the language, um, getting in and out of commercial breaks, which I've never done in my life, but I'd, I'd watched people do it for years. And so it was just, uh, it was almost kind of quite fun to kind of, you know, set myself the challenge of doing that. Um, we had a bit of a, a bit of fun actually in the, um, the broadcast in Orlando game. So obviously the Tennessee Titans were, were playing at midday central. Um, and I'd looked at the kind of the timings. And so I worked out, you know, we're approaching half time in our game in Orlando. We were going to be reaching the end of the Titans game. And um, so uh, Brad Baker, our senior executive uh, for broadcast, um, ran through a piece of paper Put it on my desk and he said titans 24 bears 17 and so um and i said is that final and yeah yep, that's final score and so um I, I just imagine for a quick second i was kind of one of those nfl announcers on the sunday afternoon who <laughs> when you when you get sent over for bonus coverage they say you know we welcome those of you who are watching the uh, you know the, the the titans and the bears and so you know i thought well you know, we, we want to be part of the sporting community, a sporting community that has the Preds, that has the Titans and now has Nashville SC. And, you know, I wanted to, you know, who knows how many were coming across, but I wanted to kind of welcome those fans in. So it was a bit of fun that we said, you know, welcome into those Titan fans who've just, who've just switched across and, you know, well done Titans getting back to winning ways. So good fun. And, you know, but it's a real privilege, I have to say, to be, to be part uh, of this, you know, this sporting environment over here. That, that I just love the fact that, 
this is a sports mad country and you know britain is pretty sports mad i can tell you the usa takes it up another notch it's just <laughs> just fantastic and uh you know i take the weight of responsibility of, of of history of being the first person to broadcast these these games here in nashville you know very very seriously and and take a lot of pride in what i'm trying to do and you know and hope people enjoy it along the way how much mls had you watched you said you you said you'd seen uh, a fair amount before you came over this is this is a this is a, a a stupid american question because i think we're we're kind of obsessed with it which is how does the how does the the standard of play compare in MLS versus, I, I think people are, are really quick to kind of point to the EPL or the championship and kind of where, where an MLS team would fall in there. What, what's your sense of, of the standard of play here in, in the States? I think looking at, looking at Major League Soccer and looking at, you know, when you just go back through the weekly highlights and you look at some of the goals that are being scored, some of the, um, the high quality technical ability you're now seeing, whether it be from players coming into the league from abroad, whether it be from um, United States based players. Uh, I think you see a league that's on a, you know, a very upward trajectory. Um, I wrestle with this question about how I would compare it with kind of like in England. I wrestle with this a lot because I, I try and think how you would pitch it, where you would pitch some of these teams with say the English structure. I mean, I, some of the best players, not all, but some of the best players are playing in the EPL. There's no doubt about that. And they have uh, done a great job of marketing their league um, over the years, building on history, but also kind of setting up a new league post-1992. Uh, you know, and, and, and they've done a really good job of going out into the world uh, and selling that game. Um, you know, the Germans are catching up quite quickly on that, uh, as are the Spaniards. Uh, and the Italian league, having kind of been... Um, very popular in Europe in uh, the kind of late 80s, early 90s, uh, is, is seeing a bit of a renaissance back as well, because everybody is latched onto this, the, the globalization of the media industry, the amount of airtime there is out there for, to show soccer, and they're all catching up. Um, and Major League Soccer is no different in that, you know, the availability of the games, the platforms, um, we're just in a much younger phase. You know, we're 25 years, you know, the, you're talking about it, the, the European countries, these games, and these teams, as I mentioned earlier, they're, they're over 100 years old in so many cases. They're woven into the fabric and the society of the towns and the villages and the cities that they represent. Um, the key difference as well over here is still the kind of, you know, the, the franchised elements of sporting teams, whereas in the UK and around most of the rest of the world, you know, these are, these are teams that just have incredible roots in their city. And again, that's another thing I think is so wonderful about what National SC is, because this is a, this is a team that is, it's digging down deep foundations in, the, in this city. This, this is about Nashville. Um, and that's another, you know, attraction. Um, so where we pitch it, I sometimes like to think it's kind of like, championship style football with a with a couple of premier league players thrown in so if you went into a kind of reasonable championship side but then you gave them a couple of real top shelf kind of players it would be kind of that kind of level it's it's hard to say from one game to the next yeah i'll be honest i've seen some games i think have been pretty poor i think we all have uh, at times um but then i've seen some fantastic games high quality great technical ability uh real evidence of a league that you know that is seeing better players every year and actually the other thing i'll say that i've kind of 
I have got really excited about learn more about since I got over here that I didn't pay as much attention to back in Europe. Um, is when you look now at the quality coming through, and this has got to excite you uh, of, of the players. I mean, the US men's national team has got, you know, I think a lot of potential in the years to come. The fact that when you look at the, the roster that will play in Europe this month, and it is only non-US based players. And when you think of the US players, you can add into that as well. And you think longer term, the bigger picture, World Cups, um, that's something actually that I hadn't thought so much about before I came over here. Now I'm here. I think mean, that is really exciting. Um, and I come for a kind of perennial underachieving soccer team in England. So, you know, it's nice to have a, a national team that gets me excited. Let's try to take people through the process of your week. Um, in a normal setting, you might have, uh, let's say, a game <laughs> on, on a weekend in a non-pandemic year. But let, let's sort of walk through that process a little bit and how you prepare. Uh, there's sort of a couple of different aspects to, a- aspects to this. Number one, maybe how do you study opponents, um, not just you know looking at names in a roster on a, on, a, on a lineup card, but how do you study your opponents? And then when you have conversations with the, the staff, which are sort of privileged broadcast conversations, which happen in every sport in the world, when you have those conversations, how do you take the things that you learn and then maybe try to explain those things to the audience without also betraying the confidence of that, that private conversation? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it completely does. And that's something that uh, is, is, has been a real eye-opener for me because in England, um, just on those kind of those kind of background calls, some of the um, some of the kind of planning that you do, uh, some of those privileged conversations that you're fortunate to have uh, with people within the club and coaching staff. Yeah, I mean, at, at times you are having some very in-depth and detailed conversations, um, and the absolute rule with that is you know that is privilege and it is it's private and it's to help with background um but then at the same time the whole point of it is it's going to improve the product it's going to improve your broadcast it's going to make you sound more authoritative it's going to help you maybe get the message across of what people are trying to do so it is a balance between knowing what you're being told interpreting that message and then using your experience uh, and your abilities to convey that message so that you are not, not betraying that any confidence. You're not saying anything out of line that quite clearly should not be said in a public stage, but also something that will add value to your broadcast. Additional content. You know, I, I always think of that thing, you know, added value. Fans, everybody can sit there, they can watch the game. What am I adding? I'm adding a commentary that is both not just telling them what they can see, they can see it. I don't need to tell them every single pass across the screen, but I'm trying to add value, you know, in the, and so every word matters in that sense. And it's from that background. So if you take it through a week, uh, let's just say it's a one game week and not one of these crazy two game weeks like we've had, which has just been, you know, relentless. They're good fun. I mean, in, to be fair, in England, you know, we do a lot of two, two game weeks. So it hasn't been that unusual to do a kind of Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Wednesday kind of schedule because um, we do go through them quite a lot. But what we don't have in England is a lot of that extra production time. Uh, we don't have all those other commitments, those calls, um, that background research time. So that has made it busy. Um, I always like to start by kind of, I always try and watch our game back, both from a professional perspective on what was good on the broadcast, what wasn't. Um, and then obviously watching the team. You know, what did I see on the night, but what did I not see? 
um, what, what are the things about the, the team that, um, you know, I make a few notes of. Uh, then I'll always watch the game of the opposition. Um, I'll usually go two or three games back as well with the opposition and either watch the highlights of those games if I haven't seen them at the time, or if I had seen them maybe live one night late, I might just watch you know, the 15-minute highlights. Just try and get a thread and get my head into where that team are um, and reading content and things. Um, if I know the broadcast team particularly well at the other, the other club or journalists in that other area, which is something obviously still a learning stage for me, not having as many contacts out here as I would have had in England, um, I, I'll have a few conversations and just you know, bounce around some ideas get an idea of like, what are the fan base talking about there? What are people liking about this team? And then you kind of sit down and you get to a point where obviously in the week where you will have your, your conversations as discussed with the, you know, the coaching staff, you'll talk to Jamie uh, and Laurie in particular, and we'll have a very, very thorough production team about where we're going. Uh, you know, and we'll set it out really. What, what is this game? What is the story? You're turning on, why do you, you know, why do you want to watch this game? Uh, I'm really big on making sure that we sell the game right at the top. I think that anybody in the production meeting with me would, would say that. So, um, you know, why should people in this age of choice stick with our broadcast? So, we, you know, it's very, very important to get to know what the game is going to be. And then from there, really rolling into the commentary, it, it's like doing an exam every week. You're re researching, preparing and being ready. And I always say to kind of younger commentators, if they talk to me about advice, I say, look, Yes, you do write things down. And I write everything down by hand still. It's an old habit, but I feel I remember things better if I write them down uh, on my charts and boards and things. Um, yes, you write them down, but actually just writing it down and then ignoring it, never looking at it again until the game is no good. It's really about trying to remember it. I don't really want to be having to be distracted in a game to have to look at my notes to tell me Chris Mueller is Orlando's top scorer with 10 goals this season. You've got to know that. You, you've got to know that Daryl DK didn't play. Uh, you've got to know Oscar Pereira had five years at Dallas. Okay, it is written down if you have a momentary lapse. But a lot of the time with soccer, it's such a fast-moving sport, you've got to keep your eyes on the game. There's not a lot of time to be looking down through your notes just to try and make some point that you've scribbled down on Tuesday and forgot all about. I, I've got a couple of uh, – I've got a little lightning round of, of, of questions here for you. What's your favorite moment this season so far? I would have said to you – a couple. I would have said a calm's goal at Dallas because, again, going back on history, it's a historic moment. And the whistle going in Dallas that night where it was one of those moments where I'd, I'd been pushing the trolley around the store and I thought, well, if, you know, when they do win, it's kind of, you know, this is never give up on you territory. And I think I delivered that line on the full time at Dallas. That was a moment. Houston winning so comfortably um, with such an explosive first half display was brilliant. Hani Mukhtar's free kick, one of my favourite commentaries of the season because that for me encapsulates how I want to be as a commentator. I think I, he hit it and I just said, oh, fantastic. Because that's all, that to me was what it was. Why did I need to send anything else? Um, but you know what? At the end of when we get to everything and we've had this incredible regular season, this remarkable journey for everyone, the things this city's been through that are both unique to this city and that it's shared with everyone else in the world, um, John de Cadiz just striking up right at the end there to finish the regular season, three points, three goals, beating Orlando. Uh, that's a pretty hard moment to, uh, to kind of match. So let's give it by a nose to John de Cadiz. So who is the, who's the player, who's the non-Nashville player that you've seen that, that you didn't know about but impressed you the most? 
I've enjoyed seeing the likes of Diego Rossi over at LAFC. Um, I have also, I, he didn't play for Orlando, but I, I thought Mauricio Pereira has been excellent uh, in their midfield. I do like watching creative players. I might be giving you a little hint by some of these players. Um, I think Brendan Aronson at Philadelphia has been excellent. It's been really good to watch a good young player coming through and you know see how his um, career progresses now. And then with a with a team actually as well, I would say you know hey show me the way to San Jose if it's not Nashville um, that I want to watch on TV because uh, <laughs> you know they are just this perennially entertaining team. I mean you just do not know what you're going to get with them. And if there's a choice of four games on one night and I'm at home and I'm looking through ESPN Plus. Uh, if San Jose are on, I'm there because uh, that's just been, you know, uh, worrying sometimes if you're the coach, but uh, thrilling if you're a fan. What's been your What's been your first? Oh, I'm in America moment. Maybe not not in the booth, but but just kind of out and about. Oh my goodness! I did. You know, yesterday somewhere in a in a in a takeaway store, I asked if they had any serviettes. And somebody looked at me and went, did you just say serviettes? And I said, yeah, yeah. And they, they went, you mean napkins? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Napkins, napkins. Sorry about that. Yeah, there's, to be honest, there are quite a few. Um, learning the traffic light system here as well has been quite interesting in the car. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah. Do, do you ever have, like, have you ever been in the middle of doing something totally nondescript and just all of a sudden gone into, like, play-by-play mode and you're, you know, you're calling like the restocking of the cupboard or something and, and, and the, and the yeah. family just looks at you like, what are you doing? Yeah. It's funny. Actually, I got shown a spoof video that they did in Minnesota of the, uh, of the play by play guy there, Callum, another Englishman. Uh, and they got him to kind of be walking around the office commentating what everybody does day to day. I like to think I don't do it openly, but I, I do get rather lost in sometimes in up there. Yeah. Life is almost one kind of continuous sports commentary. Um, so yeah, I can I can fall down the trap of that, um, and yeah, sometimes actually, if you if you're watching a game uh, and you're maybe having a, a beer with some friends or something, and uh, and you get it's a, it's not the same as commentating, but you can fall into that trap of kind of uh, say it's an NFL game and you're sitting there with a beer, and um, you know it's oh he's made a rundown, he's thrown it, it's the it's the hail mary. He's going to catch it. He's going to catch He's caught it. And then you think, oh, actually, I'm in a social situation here. I don't need to be providing the commentary to all these other people. They're watching it as well. So, if, yes, it's a, it's a habit. If you could call an NFL uh, game, who would, you, who would you want to call right now? Uh, I would want to call um, Titans because I'm in Tennessee against Raiders because I'm a, I've been a Raiders fan since the age of seven. So um, I, would, I would love to, I mean, I think John Gruden was an inspira- inspiring uh, color commentator when he, when he had his time in the booth on, on ESPN Monday nights. And again, fell into my kind of mantra of like what I like with commentary. You knew John Gruden loved it, absolutely loved it and was doing it. And he was pumping it out of his chest and smiling as he was calling Monday Night Football. Um, and, you know, he brings that to the sideline, doesn't he, now that he's back on it. So, yeah, Titan, Titans Raiders in my fantasy world, yeah. So we'll, we'll let you go. It's going to be a little while, of course, until uh, the, the team gets to, to, to host a playoff match. I know you guys have had a long season and, and a great run. Give them the advice of, all right, it's t- everybody take a breath. We've got some time off now before the match, before the playoff, before Miami shows up. Sort of give everybody what your advice would be as a, as a seasoned 
football expert, the fans who are nervous and excited, but now they have to wait. Can, what's your advice to people over the next couple of weeks to sort of just take a, take a deep breath and reflect on maybe what we've accomplished in, in, in MLS in, in our first season? Yeah, I mean, it's, an, it's, it's two things, really. It's looking forward, looking back, isn't it? Looking forward, we've got a playoff game in Nashville against Miami, a Miami team that Nashville finished eight points ahead of in the regular season. Few people would have predicted that. A Miami side built with a, a budget that has seen them bring in World Cup winners. Um, we knew that wasn't going to be the way Nashville would, would go about it here. It was about foundations and building something solid and for the future um, and, and just growing into this market. Um, look forward with excitement. Keep dreaming because that's what soccer's about. Dare to dream. There's no reason, there's nothing to stop this team going as far as they possibly can in the playoffs because this is sports. It's unpredictable. Never accept your place. You can go as high as your will will take you. And that is what is, and then the fans, I know Nashville people will get, will buy into that. But then also remember and look back and look back at the, the challenges um, that this team has gone through. The fact that it didn't play together after playing two games and could barely spend any time together for months. The Orlando tournament, the challenges it faced, the fact that it got back on the field in, in August, it went into a slate of four away games, two of which were against Dallas. I'll be honest, I could see a scenario where they could have lost all four. And, and look at the return. Great credit to the, the staff. Great credit. I think Gary Smith will, has to look back on this being one of the, one of the greatest uh, achievements of a coaching career. And these players, I think, will be proud of what they've done because in the circumstances... Uh, with the schedule and with all the challenges they've had, uh, you know, they, they've told a pretty special soccer story, actually. Um, and all the more amazing, it's happened in, you know, in year one in Nashville. So just keep enjoying. And, you know, season doesn't finish till December. Well, as as a broadcaster watching you guys call road road matches, it's uh, I, I appreciate the, the the work you guys put in to do that. And as a fan, of course, of the team, I think I speak for everybody that we've enjoyed this season um, a, a whole lot and, and looking forward to more. So thank you, Tony. We do appreciate it, my man. Been great to talk to you both. Want to say special thanks, of course, to Tony Husband from Nashville SC, the play-by-play man on the television side of things for our club here in Nashville. And they're in the playoffs. And I think, you know, finishing up that interview, Steve, I think it's a great perspective. And I feel this way as a fan and as someone who has lived through MLS to Nashville (laughs) as a website and an organization, through the announcement, through the stadium issues, through COVID, through a pandemic – and now into the playoffs. It is a remarkable journey from, I don't know, how long ago? Four years ago? Three years ago? When this whole thing got started as a concept? When the ownership group came together and formed the plan? And to be here today with uh, a playoff game <laughs> coming up on Friday, November 20th, is, is really a remarkable story. Yeah, soup to nuts. Uh, it, soup to nuts, it's been four years. And it, it's that's quite remarkable for a that's a quite a remarkable journey for any professional franchise uh, particularly for soccer in Nashville which I don't know was on many people's radar before a, a lot of kind of visionary folks putting that putting the franchise together really identified the need was out there and, and the fan base was out there and said and and also identified the fact that if we act really fast that we can get to the front of MLS expansion. The timing on this thing, and I've written about this a little bit for the scene, is 
is one of the most remarkable remarkable things in sports here over the last you know over the last ten years, particularly in Nashville, because they really hit a very tight window and it could have closed on them in a couple of different places and and you know hats off to them for 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 a successful first season you know it's one of the fastest growing sports in the united states and also has a good amount of youth participation right it's not like hockey in nashville when predators got here they had to sort of build the youth levels of participation out of thin air sort of soccer has been a big deal in the southeast and in nashville chattanooga like Soccer, you know, everybody grew up playing soccer, so it's not um, well. And 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 there's high level, there, there's high level youth soccer here, and the participation in in Middle Tennessee, particularly in Williamson County, but but in Davidson, particular, and also over the last you know twenty or so years, and then kind of within Tennessee, there's a big base of people to to pull from. Yeah. And, and I think they tapped into it pretty pretty brilliantly. I think Tony did a great job explaining sort of his role coming to a new market with a new expansion team and being in on the ground floor. Again, I think there's a difference between the Predators who were born here, like Nashville SC was, versus the Titans who moved here from from like sort of a, a interwoven fabric cliche into the community. I think that's a factor. A couple of soccer notes for him. I, I thought his explanation on your question about where would an MLS team sort of fall on a standard of play – in the EPL is sort of, as you said, it's a question that we all want to know. <laughs> right. And it's sort of basic well, level stuff. But I think I thought his answer was, was pretty good. I mean, American fans in, in many ways are, are, are kid brother fans in the sense that that they always want to know kind of how they fit in. Are, are, are we good enough? Are we really doing this? Just watch the World Cup last time. Yeah, well, that'll tell you. <laughs> we are not how we're, how we're doing. But, but that seems to be changing. Well, and that, I think that's fascinating in that. There's this new crop of young U.S. players across Europe, you know, whether it's Gio Reyna or whether it's Christian Pulisic uh, or Weston McKinney. All of these guys are really sort of reinvigorating a, a fan base and kind of making fans kind of hope again after missing a World Cup for a cycle. And, and, I, and I think part of the puzzle has always been where does MLS fit in player development and is this going to be the thing that lets us have like a broad enough base of players to make us competitive on the World Cup level? And I think the answer to that over 25 years of MLS is obviously yes. There's, there's, a, much bigger, there's a much bigger base uh, to pull from. But for, for U.S. fans, I think we've, on a club level, we're always wondering, is my club, would my club be good enough to play yeah. against Arsenal? Would, would my club be good enough to play against like, the, bottom, the, the bottom part? And, and I would say my, my, my first answer instinctually is always like, no. But I, I think that that's changing. And from a soccer standpoint, I think it's easy to point to growth in popularity. You're talking about more investment in the league itself, more investment in youth academies, more teams that are going to be homegrown and, and sort of developing, I think, reaching out to far more diverse audiences of, of young players is going to be critical. We are a, a melting pot country. I think getting that level of diversity into our product at, at the lowest levels is critical. But there's also a media. We're on a media show here. There's also a media element to this, which is, as you listened to Gorman last week, talk about how he gets to watch you know, his favorite teams in the EPL and the Bundesliga and all these leagues that are now marketed in the United States far better than they ever have been. You can consume the products, which only is going to accelerate the popularity and the growth of, of people's passion towards soccer in general. So I think there's a lot of forces at play, not just from an actual athletic standpoint, but from a media standpoint as well. So let me ask you this, because so to kind of bring it back to Tony, and we haven't asked the Nashville SC guys this, I'd be interested to know if they would give us this answer or not, which is, do you think that they felt like they needed 
a British voice on the <laughs> on the call in order to kind of give that sort of implicit bit of authority for those broadcasts because I think I think the answer is yes. Yeah, I mean, we, I, we, I think there is an air of yeah, I think air of authority. Like there's there's credibility to some degree. If, if you if you look at who the ESPN lead lead soccer announcers have been for years, they've always had American color commentators, usually former players. Right now, uh, the lead ESPN one is Taylor Twelman, but they've had Casey Keller in there. They've had a whole host of people. But in the wake of in, in the wake of 2002, which was the most successful run, was that Landon Donovan team that broke through. The big criticism was Jack Edwards and this American crew kind of being homers, but also maybe not being good enough. After that, it's been, you know, they, they tried out Dave, they tried out Dave O'Brien. He did not, he did not do, do well. And they, so they have, have consciously gone, whether it's to John Champion or Ian Dark, yeah, yeah. They, they've consciously gone to these big authoritative English voices for the, for the premier soccer product that's on their airwaves. And, and that may be not fair to some American broadcasters who are very skilled, very talented, no, and, I mean, and the, know the product better than we did maybe in the 90s. Because there's a lot of people, there's a lot of Americans that would be qualified to do Tony's job. It doesn't mean that Tony's not the right guy for the job. Over on the Fox broadcast, John Strong is a tremendous broadcaster. Uh, and he's even he's even gotten some... He's even gotten some of his own cliches that that I think American fans kind of have picked up on and and, and enjoy in his calls. But he is he's tremendous. I do think it's it's fair to say, like again, if you come up through the SEC ranks calling college football games, you have come up in the place in the world where it is the most passionate. Right. So if you come up in the ranks in England calling EPL games for the BBC, you are you are doing the sport at the highest level where it is the most passionate. Right. So. There is a lot to be said about having those experiences, and I think it's very obvious when he calls it how how top level Tony is. Like well, he's, I mean that he's, comes he's that came across there. in this conversation. Comes across on his broadcast. I mean, I think the, I think the broadcast have benefited from that. It, you know, they could have. I think they could have done this a different way, and and maybe not had a top flight broadcaster in there, and it might not have gone as well. I, I think they did a great job. It's been a, a wonderful sound and, and broadcast to watch, even through. A pandemic. My only complaint was the the digital tarps there for a couple of games on the seats where the ball would disappear. <laughs> That's the only complaint I have all season about the broadcast because they they'd send a you know you send a long ball down the right right hand side of the field and like yeah it would disappear it would disappear behind you know I don't know Nissan tarps or something. That's my only complaint. Otherwise, I think it has been a fantastic listen, a fantastic watch. And oh, by the way, the team's pretty fun to watch too. They're pretty damn good. And the game coming up Friday, November twentieth. You know, check it out, man. It's going to be a. They've got they've got a chance to win a couple games. Like it's it's they're pretty good. Yeah. So the games go. I mean, this is typical of the playoffs. The games go to the networks now from from here on out. But uh, I think they're going to the. They will go over to the radio feed now. So if you've if you've enjoyed Tony's work, uh, you'll you'll you can get him on the radio call. And shouts to John Freeman and West Bowling. Good run, guys. Two good guys that do the radio broadcast that I've worked with. Love those guys. Know that know that team inside and out and did a great job this year on radio as well. All right, let's get to ratings and recs here to wrap up the program as we do each and every week here on Lamestream. The top five most watched sports shows in Nashville over the last over the last week, and then of course some recommendations. Uh, so for some context here, the Titans are number one again, of course as it's going to be the case until they stop playing football games. But let's give them some context here, Steve. Bills-Titans on a Tuesday night pulled a 24.1. 
Then the following Sunday was Texans-Titans, eight, which is a really good football game, a 25.8. Then, of course, the Steelers-Titans uh, down to the wire, 28.8. So up again, right? So it's, we're gaining, gaining a little momentum here. Then you go Titans Bengals twenty four six, so it drops down a little bit. Dropping, but you're dropping a you're dropping a, a a class of opponent in addition to the drama of the game. Right, and and so Steelers also now not no longer undefeated. Right, you're right. you're undefeated against the Steelers. Then you lose a game. Your class of opponent goes down. You play poorly, <laughs> so the game wasn't particularly competitive in the first half. Actually, uh, that was a twenty four point six, which brings us to this week Bears Titans twenty one point nine. I don't know if you can chalk that all up to just the Bears being an ugly, bad watch. But that's a pretty big drop from a 28-8 with the Steelers two weeks ago down to Bears-Titans as a 21.9. I'll be interested to see kind of where it is this week. I I bet it's going to be higher, and I think you're going to see these things kind of seesaw up and down, uh, kind of trailing the last win or loss. And, and you know, two losses in a row steams off of them for a little bit. Plus, I mean... I, and then I, a Thursday night time slot is, right. is different than Sunday as well, so... Right. Thursday Thursday night game will be... Should... The Thursday night game should actually add eyeballs. It, yeah. prime, prime, prime time always does. Very, very highly rated slot for the NFL. Uh, number two on the list was Steelers-Cowboys, 16.2. Saints-Bucks was number three on the list, 13.1. Number four, SEC football, Florida-Georgia, number four, a 10.7. And then the ACC game, Clemson and Notre Dame, tied with the Packers and Niners, which I believe was the Thursday night game from the week before. That's 9.5, 9.5. Uh, again, Packers-Niners is pretty big, but the Niners suck. But Clemson-Notre Dame with basically zero tie to the market other than Notre Dame being a huge brand, Clemson being number one, and it being a phenomenal football game. But, but that's it, why it tied at number five. Big NBC game. Uh, you know, they, they lucked out. Uh, NBC lucked out, you know. I, th- I don't think NBC gets that game if it's, if it's in Clemson, if it's at Clemson. It, is, it was the highest rated NBC college football game since the Bush push. Yeah. I think they pulled like a 14 or something nationally. It's huge. It was interesting in that game, kind of like watching Twitter in the second screen during that. So you're getting down to sort of the climax of this game and, and you know, is Notre Dame going to be able to pull this out? Half of Twitter is going nuts over the quality <laughs> of the game. Half of the the uh, the other half of Twitter, because that was the day the presidential race had been called. Get this crap off my TV. It's like, it's like I need Chappelle. <laughs> Give me SNL. Yeah. Get this crap off of my screen. Oh, don't get me started on what I watched in between. Well, don't get me started on that. Uh, and, and which, by the way, if you haven't watched, if you haven't watched that Chappelle uh, monologue, it, yep, it's up on it's up on YouTube. Yep, it's worth it. It's. I would also go back and watch the one he did in 2016. Yeah, yeah. Watch them back to back. You're very rarely going to see somebody, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna repeat the. Nope, the, you can't. <laughs> well, I can, but I'm not going to. Uh, I'd like this podcast to continue. You're very rarely going to see somebody stick the landing. The way Chappelle does. Yep. It's so freaking good. He is, and I again, this is a good way for us to transition. By the way, thank you to Mark Binda of News Channel 5 for giving us these ratings. Every one of those rating points, of course, is the equivalent of about 11,000 TV homes in the Nashville market. This is a good way to transition to a recommendation. This is not my recommendation, but I do recommend you watch the Chappelle award show receiving the Mark Twain Award at the Kennedy Center. Which, so my wife and I are, like, Chappelle show got people from the beginning I'm not sure there's a smarter comedian in the history of the world. I mean, there's brilliant dudes and, and women out there that are just amazing comedians, but he is on an intelligence level. Yeah. He's on another level. And this this is in the monologue. Uh, you know, Chappelle show is now streaming on Netflix, and you can go back. You can go back and check out some of those. Uh, 
it is some of, it is some of the more daring sketch work that you're going to find, considering the time that it came out. Yeah, yes. absolutely, absolutely. And and again, some of that story was told in the in the Mark Twain Award ceremony, which I think is also on Netflix. I think. Yeah, you should be able so. to find it. You, you, it's it's streaming someplace, or you know, just go get the good bits off YouTube. So already, just like stole a recommendation. So you go, you go ahead, Steve. You go so first. this is a it's a really good newsletter called Huddle Up. That is a sports business uh, newsletter. It doesn't it doesn't always go as deep as I would want it to. But they're very, very topical, and they are, are quick to turn around kind of these burning questions. Like in the last week or so, they've done, they've done topics like, uh, like looking at the NBA's revenue shortfall and like kind of how, you know, as, we're, as they're talking about when they're going to launch the next NBA season, kind of what all the financial impediments are to, to them having a season next year and like who's going to have to take pay cuts. They did a really good piece on the, the kind of the billion-dollar problem of regional sports networks Hmm. and sort of teams that are on the teams that are on the cusp of just kind of owning and distributing like their own stuff and and sort of as more and more people go over the top and these these regional sports networks have lost a revenue base kind of what the problems are for teams what the problems are for i mean you know you're here in this market fox sports tennessee has preds and it has I think it has part of the Braves schedule and has has a few other things on it. Grizz- some Grizzly stuff too. I think, I think. there's some Grizzly yeah. games as well. Beyond that, the, that programming is a real mishmash, and and when you start to look at all of these regional sports networks, how many of them are are valuable standing on their own, you know, independent of these of of sports rights and kind of how sports rights fees are going to shake out and what it's going to mean for teams and salary caps long term. It, it's fascinating. Anyway, huddle up. Really good at kind of getting kind of the the top of mind sports, sports business uh, topic of the day. It's just a really excellent newsletter. So I am now dipping the toe into the Substack world because I'm not a Substack guy the way you are. You've you've been, you know, into the Substack world for a while now. But in light of whatever that award show was this week that took place in Nashville, Tennessee, I would like to recommend... Alternative programming, <laughs> <laughs> which is on Substack newsletter that just was started, I think a couple of weeks ago, maybe. It's called Don't Rock the Inbox by a fantastic Nashville writer, Marissa Moss, who has been on the cover of Rolling Stone, has written for all different types of organizations, is writing a book right now about women in country music, and her partner, Natalie Weiner, who's a huge sports fan and country music fan, who I think is based out of New York, really smart, uh, really two really smart people. And they, I'll read it off their website here because I want to get their mission statement correctly. It is, they wanted to try something new, specifically a bi-weekly newsletter with essays, interviews, and reviews that reflect what's happening now in country music. Again, I think they had some stuff on, you know, Justin Townsurl when he passed away. They had some conversations around that, some stories around that. If there's a new record coming out, they had a lot of, st- Marissa's not shy on Twitter. Yeah, her, her Twitter feed is one of my favorite things. It's, she's really, really good. And, and. And has has a, a a bit of righteous indignation about a, a, a <laughs> about a couple of like kind of core topics, particularly country radio, which I mean, quite frankly, is a dumpster fire in most cases. There's there's exceptions to that, and there's even exceptions to that here in town. But my God, across the board, you know, 
<laughs> when you talk to artists about like kind of if unless you're unless you're you know Jason Aldean or, or one of these people, getting onto country radio it feels a lot like I don't know prostitution or <laughs> or well which which frankly Marissa has written a lot about uh, because again we can go we, we we can do a whole other episode about how you get spins on in country music radio. There's a whole conversation about that. Marissa's Twitter feed is, is was really good yeah. last night for the unnamed award show. Yes. Congratulations to Marin Morris, I think. Yeah. <laughs> That's all the, I learned. The, the, you know, the CMAs have always been a shit show for media because they're so controlling. If you missed it, last night, the, the Associated Press could not do photos from the, they didn't do it from the red carpet. They didn't do it from the actual show. They didn't give them a slot inside. So what AP had said had, was trying to move stuff for, for member papers and, and said, hey, can we just do screenshots? And the... <laughs> <laughs> the CMAs came back to them with a list of demands, including one of which was that they couldn't show the people in the audience. Hmm. And I, I wonder think, why. Well, I wonder why. Because, you know, they were inside in a, a lot of people unmasked, unma- unmasked. <laughs> and they didn't want, you know, they didn't want yeah. people to be to be shown, even though they were showing up on the actual telecast. They they wouldn't let AP, yeah. you know, grab them. This is just kind of an ongoing thing about the CMAs. Uh, Marissa's always really good about this. She's really smart, and she used to write for me some at the scene, and, and, and just one of my favorite writers. Yeah, so like in their last last episode, they covered Billy Billy Joe Shaver, uh, Justin Towns Earl, a couple of song recommendations. Just It's just sort of a catch-all for, for really interesting country music if, you, if you're into that stuff. And again, my favorite CMA story ever is I tried to get out of bed because I used to live like two blocks from Bridgestone Arena. When I, when I saw on Twitter that Sturgill Simpson was busking outside of the CMAs with his Grammys in his guitar case on Bridgestone Plaza, I tried to get out of bed and go down to hang out with him. And my wife was like, what are you doing? Get back in bed. Stay, <laughs> stay. We're going, we're asleep right now. Braden, okay, you're not 23 anymore. Like, uh, former, uh, what are you doing? Former scene music editor Adam Gold uh, went down there and was was like was like live streaming that whole thing on <laughs> right. Facebook. It was fantastic. That's my favorite CMA story of all time. You're not. We're not going to invite the guy who won a bunch of Grammys. <laughs> Tremendous. All right, that does it. We're done. Th- special thanks to Tony Husband and Nashville SC for having a chance to talk with him. It's not over yet. Of course, you got a great run here coming in the postseason i think we're worthy of checking out of course uh, on november 20th friday should be a fantastic match against miami as they come to town steve cavendish where can people follow you at scavendish on twitter rate review and subscribe to the show smash that button my name is Braden gall you can follow me at Braden gall follow the 440 sports accounts as well all over the socials this has been lamestream sports thank you for listening on the 440 sports network <laughs>